We set it up every single year that I'm going to follow that. So that's uh, <laughs> a pretty good thing. How are we doing? We, um, just to give you a little sense of where we are, we're looking at an arrival at the gate at about, <laughs> depending on which gate you want to get out on, <laughs> at about 12.10 or 15 for the shofar service, Musaf after that as well. Um, we're looking good right now. We, um, we had an image up. We had an image up earlier because it was and is so much a part of the theme of Rosh Hashanah, part of this day, Yom Azikaron. We're told that Yom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. More accurately, today is the pregnancy of the world. Herayon, it's the gestated, full presence. Everything in potential. There is a beautiful midrash, a rabbinic folk teaching that goes like this. Unto what may the fetus be compared when it is its mother's womb? What is it like? It is like a notebook that is folded up, its hands resting on its temples, elbows on thighs, heels against buttocks, head lies between its knees, its mouth is closed, and its navel is open. When it comes forth into the air of the world, what is closed opens, and what is opened closes. This is the source for the great Yehuda Amichai, maybe the greatest Israeli poet to have ever lived. He reworks this Talmudic mashal, this parable, into maybe one of the most famous poems he ever wrote. It goes, according to that title, open, closed, open. Open, closed, open, he writes, before we are born, everything is open in the universe without us. For as long as we live, everything is closed within us. And when we die, everything is open again. Open, closed, open. That's all we are. Open, closed, open. For Yehuda Amichai, for that poet, existence is experienced as a temporary closure between two open states. Open, closed, open, before we are born open, when we are born closed, when we die, open again. For many of you here this morning, I'll certainly count myself, that phrase, open, closed, open, is not only about a full life, but about maybe my moment-to-moment -moment experience throughout this year. Sometimes open, hopeful, sometimes closed, angry, only to be opened again and then closed and then open and closed like an accordion of the soul. <laughs> Back and forth. Open, closed, open. This image of an embryonic life that is a notebook folded upon itself. And the minute that we come into the world, that notebook opens up and life begins to write itself onto us. We are written with the ink of existence with the frames that are preconceived and preformed before we even arrive, we come with a tabula rasa, as it were, an open page, and then life writes itself on us. We, like that notebook, arrive ready to take notes 
But before we can even make one, the world starts its sentences and paragraphs. I wonder if we use Amichai's frame that life closes when we are born, what our first closing would be. My dad was a real estate attorney, probably loved that line, but what our first closing <laughs> would be. What's the first closing? Is it the first sight that we see? Is it the mother? I'm going to venture a guess here this morning. It could be wrong. This is not empirical. But I imagine that our first closing is the first label that is given to us. The first name that we are given when we come out of the womb. I know my wife and I, Ariel and I, spent months thinking about what the name would be for our first child. I called up my Rebbe, Reb Zalman, one day. He said, he said David Laban, don't name him until you hold him. Don't name him until you hold him. We had already named him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we were so bent up about talking to the baby in uterus, we had, to, we had to have a name. We couldn't just call it thing or almond seed or, be, or you know, bean. And there is the notion that naming isn't a closing at all. There is a notion within the Jewish tradition, the mystical tradition of, of Judaism, Kabbalah, says that letters and words aren't arbitrarily chosen. They're not just sounds that we just string together in some arbitrary way. We don't name things arbitrarily, that there are actual essence or ontic, ontological value to words. When you name a thing, it's not just that you just gave it something to label it with. It actually calls forth an essence. A name isn't just a description, but a an aspiration, a prayer. There is that notion. But I want to suggest this morning that yes, and. Yes, it's true that a label and a name does call forth something. Labels are valuable. Labels are so important. Choosing a name confers a new identity, a new destiny. Even this morning with Sarah and Abram, when they had different names, they couldn't give birth. They were each given a hey. They changed their name from Sarah, Abram, like Letterman, right? Like, here's a hey. I give it to you, and you become a new person. There's something there. But some labels, many of them, when they limit, they lie. When they limit, they lie. Labels, as much as they enlarge our world, can also limit it and falsify it. But before we go there, I just want to admit something. It's not Yom Kippur, but a little confession to make. I love labels. <laughs> Anybody have one of these? Anybody have home and away? Anybody have one in the office and in the car? Anybody have like a label? I tell you, I love labels. I tell, when I was, anybody who knows me um, knows that over the last 10 years of my life, inexplicably and without any warning, almost like a midlife crisis, became a midlife labeling obsession. <laughs> you know, it, it could be that, you know, I became obsessed with the organization right around the time that I started one. That could be it. It was a new phenomenon to me. I all of a sudden found myself labeling everything. I wasn't like this when I was growing up. In my, certainly not. If you ask my siblings, when I was in my 20s, there was no way that I was in any way, shape, or form organized that would not have been a description for me. 
And all of a sudden, the last 10 years, 15 years, I want to know where everything is. I want to find old stuff and file it. I want to put stuff away. I want to control the information I have. After living most of my life like Oscar Madison, <laughs> dating myself there a little bit, it felt so good to arrive at middle age and become Felix Unger, <laughs> thereby becoming my own inner odd couple. I think that there's a part of me that brought this here today to label my sermon after I finish it. <laughs> Labels are great for folders and binders and CDs. When we affix a label to something, it helps us aggregate and define, locate and demarcate it. Labels work as markers. They're generally great human inventions. Labels work precisely because they generalize or categorize objects that we name, and that those objects are static. And for the most part, they themselves as objects have not named themselves thus. As far as I know, my phone chargers and my mini USB cables or even my baby wipe area all were labels that I affixed. <laughs> it's all good. Labels are great things for things. But what about things that aren't things? What about those category of some something that can't be named fully, that definitively or exhaustively, without remainder, without any absolute accuracy? Let's take one for example. God is not good with the whole label thing. For one thing, we're told that God has many, many, many names. Read that as labels. The holiest label that we give to God can't even be pronounced. We don't ever fully see God. And even Moses, the greatest of our prophets, when asked to see God's face, we're told, you can't see me. In the Middle Ages, there was a different Moses, Maimonides, who took this notion a bit further, stating that we can't ever know anything positive about God, only what God isn't. This is known as negative theology, via negativa. We know by not knowing Getting to know you, I say, with an N-O. No, not this, not that. God is label-free in the Middle Ages. Labelless God made room for mystery and wonder. Greatest idolatry for us was to say what God's name was or define what can't fully be defined. When Moses encounters the burning bush, when he's first initiated as a prophet, he encounters a God who gives him a name that is essentially indeterminate. Who are you, Moses asked God as he's about to, to enter into the slavery and bondage of a people in Egypt. God re responds, I am becoming what I am becoming. Don't fix me. Don't label me. Come to the people of Egypt and tell them becoming is becoming. That which is static will change. There's no final resting place. But because of that, that name was the perfect name to give a people who were enslaved, a people who thought about themselves in their own self-labeling. We are slaves, and God said, you can become something else. My friend Estelle Frankel writes, through the name Ehyeh, the name of the divine becoming, the Israelites were redeemed.
yeah, I will be is indeterminate. My identity, my story isn't a permanent, never-changing phenomenon. So theological labeling is absolutely normal. We use names. We just had 13 of them. We meet a deity today that has many, many names. Theological labeling becomes idolatrous only when we confuse the label for the thing itself. Fixing that which can't be fixed, assigning a definition to that which is essentially open, we close. What was open? Open, close. Open. There is something called anthropolabeling or naming humans. It would make sense that, that human beings who are created in the image of God would also have a hard time with labels. We all move from open to close, from the infinity of before birth to our limited identities. Human labeling becomes idolatrous when we fix what is fluid, when we think we know the whole from the part, when we live with unacknowledged bias and beliefs that demean and devalue the mystery of becoming in the humans that we meet. How do we break the labeling? Even as we recognize that many labels are hard won, many labels are labels that we dreamed of being able to lay claim to, how do we, how do we this morning, how do we this month, this year, how do we call out the lies that labels are? In a moment, we are going to Take out one of these instruments. I'm sure you've seen one of these before. This instrument of awakening, the shofar, has a sound that the Torah tells us is called a chuah. Chuah. Can everybody say that? Chuah. A day of chuah, which of course the rabbis wondered, what does chuah mean? It's a trumpet blast, but what is a chuah? The word itself, chuah, shofar blast. We're told by one of the great Hasidic rabbis, the Slonimer Rebbe, that a trumpet blast, the word chuah, is from tiroem beshevet barzel, thunder, or even the word kara, which means to rip or to rend. Our first moment of working through the limiting lies of labels is to recognize that in this waking up instrument, each and every one of us can change the labels that we are given or the labels that have been affixed to us, the labels that we ourselves ascribe to others. It happens a couple of ways. The first way on the level of individual labeling my own self-label is a label that I have given myself or that someone else has given me, and I can transcend that label. I read a story about Zach Ibrahim, a young Muslim who left a world of hatred and prejudice, became a peacemaker. He was raised within a radical Islamic culture. His father, El Sayyid Nasser, was a convicted terrorist who was involved with the 1993 attempt to blow up the World Trade Center in New York City. And from a very early age, Zach was taught to hate Jews. He was also told to hate gays and other minorities and was being groomed to become a terrorist just like his dad. It was through a series of choices that he made as a teenager and as a young adult he succeeded in breaking out 
of that world of hate, and he became a peace activist. When Zach tells his own story, he identifies several experiences that helped him see beyond the certainties of his fundamentalist upbringing. He was at a national youth convention in Philadelphia during the 2000 presidential campaign. He, he was part of a focus group on stopping youth violence, and he himself had been a victim of bullying for most of his life, and so he felt passionate about the matter. And towards the end of the convention, he learned that one of the youth he had befriended at the convention was Jewish. This discovery challenged many of the negative stereotypes of Jews he'd learned growing up. The next pivotal experience for him was he met and befriended a group of gay performers that were working at the Bush Gardens amusement park over the summer. Zach found these individuals to be the kindest and least judgmental people he had ever met. And all of a sudden, the label that he had been given, the label that he had given himself, the label that he had given to Jews, that label lied. The fault line began to move, and change was possible. What he thought was certain was uncertain. I, too, went to Israel this past year with the encounter group, like Rabbi Jessica. And I'll never forget my own labels, my own fears coming up. I had been brought up in a world where it was always the Palestinians' fault. I had been brought up in a world where the entirety of the conflict was on one side and it wasn't mine. I was brought up in a world where evidence to the contrary was written off. And although I had left that world a long time ago and I have been a member of many organizations working for peace, I had never once thought that I could step into the West Bank and into East Jerusalem in the way that we did. When we arrived, I could feel my own body working its way through fear. I could feel my own labels coming up, labels that limit and labels that lie. And through the experience of being with others and meeting incredibly powerful, loving, compassionate, nonviolent advocates for peace and reconciliation, I could sense in myself how indoctrinated I had been to discount evidence to the contrary, to know things differently. I could say things like, some of my best friends are Palestinians. <laughs> but it was different. I met a man named Sully, became a friend of mine, who works for an organization called Combatants for Peace. Combatants for Peace is a group of Palestinians and Jews on both sides who have been involved in violent expression against the other. Soli himself had hated Israelis so much that he had been, he had thought every day, how can I attack? And one day he did, he took a knife, found himself in a park, and stabbed three Israelis in the back, and spent years in an Israeli prison. And there he was in an Israeli prison, with the label terrorist and the Israelis labeled occupiers, evil, colonialists, imperialists. And one day on the TV, Schindler's List was playing. And Sully watched, and something sank in for him. He realized how traumatized we Jews have been. He got it. 
He understood. And he's working so hard within his own community and other communities to bring those labels that lie into full relief. And on the other side, Israelis doing the same, willing to confront labels that limit and lie for the sake of peace, for the sake of love. The first moment of this shofar, tiro'em, is to shatter, to rip, to rend, to repeal labels that lie. This country, this community, the incredible power of labels to limit. Even within Romimu, there are people who come into my office and say, you know, Rabbi, I've been coming to Romamu now for years, and I'm one of a handful of African Americans who shows up at the shul. And pretty regularly, I am asked, what am I doing here? Pretty regularly, I am confused with other African Americans who come to Romamu. Pretty regularly, even in a community that is rooted and grounded in love and living labellessly, we can't help having our biases come up. I was walking on the street and I saw this campaign. It's an incredible campaign. It's called Love Has No Labels. Anybody ever see Love Has No Labels? Love Has No Labels. Check that out, that website. Love Has No Labels. Love Has No Labels. Go in and check your own biases, your own labels that you carry how they limit and how they lie, how they color what we see, not just because we see it, but how we see the world. On my, my little, in our room, three boys in our house, we have this poster that we're really thankful to a friend for pointing it out. For every girl who's tired of acting weak when she is strong, there is a boy tired of appearing strong when he feels vulnerable. For every boy who is burdened with the constant expectation of knowing everything, there is a girl tired of people not trusting her intelligence. For every girl who is tired of being called oversensitive, there is a boy who fears to be gentle, to weep. For every boy for whom competition is the only way to prove his masculinity, there is a girl who is called unfeminine when she competes. Get this poster. I want to be in that mindset. For every label, girl, boy, left, right, center, there is a rending, a tearing that must take place so that our projections and our assumptions, our limitations can be brought to the fore and seen for what they are. This repealing is vital. And lest you think you don't have it, go to no, lovehasnolabels.com and take the bias test. The second meaning the Slonim Rebbe gives to this shofar, that word shu'ah, not only means rending, but it also means, he says, from the word re'ut. Ve'ahavta l're'acha means friend, alliance. Solidarity. Re'ut, the shofar tells us, Re'ut is 
an invitation not only to rend and rip apart, but to rally one another in a shared vulnerability, a shared open, closed open. To transcend our differences and distinctions by remembrance of a prior, more fundamental identity as children of life and of one source. Reut, when this shofar sounds in a moment, we are reminded not only to repeal and to rend and to rip those labels that limit, but to enlarge the label to include a much deeper politics of identity, which is high human. Anybody ever get this? Funny, you don't look. Anybody get that one? Anybody have one they want to share right now? Because I, I have a lot to share. Funny, you don't look like a rabbi. That applies across the board, especially women rabbis, but men too, especially if you do something that's not rabbinical. Funny You Don't Look. I was sitting with Sylvia Borstein a couple of uh, a week ago, and she wrote a book called Funny You Don't Look, Buddhist. <laughs> Funny You Don't Look Like a Jew. Funny that You Don't Look Like a... Mm. Whenever you hear that, get the label maker out. <laughs> Lies. There's a deeper humanity that all of us share. It's true that identities and the politics of identity, all the things that make us deliciously different and distinct, all of those divine, delectable, delightful differences are themselves gorgeous. And there's a fundamental ground, a humanity that each of us shares. We are human. We are human. Funny you don't look human. Can you imagine that? We rally around each other because the truth is that we are greater together, we are better together, we are human together, we are built in such a way that our neurons mirror one another. Somebody cries, we cry, we are a we. Swami Satchitananda, great Hindu saint said, of course I is important, but when you take I, exclusively you get illness. But when you put we in front of it, you get wellness. Reut, Reut, the sound of the shofar is a battle cry for us as humans to bond on the level of funny, you do look human. You do bleed, you do cry, you do yearn for your own family, you do yearn for dignity and inherent primal respect. When we open to our shared vulnerability, when we see each other as human, we are able to be with the multidimensional, complicated, unique, and equally human person who stands before me. That which stands before me it also lives within me. That which stands before me, the one before whom I stand, also lives within me. We have the same ancestry, says Rosh Hashanah. When we open ourselves to what is closed, we are able to connect to that place, but it isn't easy. When we open ourselves to what is closed in front of someone whom we oppose in terms of our values and our opinions, even the most open-minded of us can become closed. So here's a maxim. Love your neighbor, especially when they're not like yourself. Marcella White Campbell's blog, A Letter to My Black and Jewish Daughter in Light of the Election, touched me so deeply. 
She wrote to her daughter, Dear Maya, From the time you were born, I tried to raise a small but mighty black and Jewish feminist, a girl who was not just cute but fast, not just sweet but smart, not just pretty but strong. I peppered you with action words, run, climb. Out of all of the verbs I was brainstorming, listen had not occurred to me. I wanted you to sing and speak. I wanted your voice to rise above everyone else's. I wanted you to roar. I'm not sure I raised a roarer, but I did raise a singer, she writes. This past Arab Yom Kippur, as the first stars winked into the sky, I closed my eyes along with the congregation, and slowly, as it always does, the sound of the Shema whispered through the hall, rising into that beautiful opening note. Your voice beside me grew until you, your clear, strong soprano, floated above all of the others, and then I remembered, listen. And so you come to me now, she writes, groan, this morning after the election, and we cried. I wanted to do something to make you feel better. All I could do was to listen to you cry and then go somewhere to cry myself. I've been so angry. Since then, she writes, angry for you and your brother, two children that I brought into a world that I thought was going to be better than we found it, but it is still getting worse, or maybe it's miserably the same. You saw naked racism and anti-Semitism directed at people like you. And I told you America would not let it stand. But it did. I let you believe that our values would win over other values, that the struggle for good versus evil... I told you that. And she says, I'm not apologizing for my anger, but I've been thinking about what I can tell you to do. Now that you ask for more action words, millions of people in this country don't agree with you. They believe, though, that they are good people. And we need them to come out and explain how they can square their choice with the values that we thought we had. As one human family, to tear away the labels that limit and lie, replacing them with labels large enough to hold the mystery at the heart of every human soul. On this day of re'ut, of friendship, let us rally and let's meet each other where we're open to seeing the human family that we all belong to. On this day of opening what is closed, let us find the courage to step up and open. Go beyond our biases and beliefs about others and about ourselves, embracing each other. As we stand ready to sound the shofar, to wake up before God and our fellow people, individuals amongst billions of equally valuable human beings. Let us be reminded of our immense capacity to do good, to love and to help one another. We are better together. May this coming year of 5778 be a year of seeding more love, more love, more love, more understanding, more healing as we work together to reduce fear, pain, and suffering. Let's increase hope, trust, and faith. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Let's rise together for the shofar. Yes.